1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hey, my name is Emily Friedlander and you're listening to the Thump Podcast, Episode 2. Every week we'll bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife with the occasional special guest. In this episode, we'll be talking about a list that recently came out about the most expensive electronic records that ever sold on Discogs, along with some findings our associate editor David Garber made when reporting an upcoming piece on the CrowdSource Music Database. We'll also be discussing an interesting footnote in Moby's career, his soundtrack for a 2006 film by Donnie Darko director Richard Kelly, which our other associate editor, Ezra Marcus, believes predicted the current post-truth media landscape. Finally, we'll be talking about a recent development in the fallout of last year's tragic ghost ship fire in Oakland wherein authorities have been instructed to report any illegal events or parties to their supervisors and the impact that such a measure could have on the local scene. Do you guys all want to introduce yourselves?
3: I'm Anna Coderado and I'm
2: the news editor at Thump.
0: I'm David Garber, I'm the associate editor.
1: I'm Ezra Marquez and I'm also an associate editor.
2: What have you been listening to
3: this week? I've been listening to a UK producer called Seb Wildblood. His SoundCloud link was recently sent to me by a very good friend from back in London. And I didn't really know a whole lot about him, but he runs his own label and night in South London called Church. I'm really loving his music. I think it's partly a nostalgic thing, because to me it sounds very distinctly London. It's quite sparse and pared back, but has a kind of syncopated beat that just gives that subtle nod to UK Garage and bass music. I think David, however, knows a lot more about him than I do. Yeah,
0: I really... um, I've been into Seb's music for a couple of years now. I actually booked him to play his first NYC gig a couple of years back. His real name is Jane's. Actually, I learned... I was calling him Seb for a while, and then I discovered that was, in fact, not his name. Obviously the case with a lot of artists. But yeah, I kind of, I really like it. I mean, it's very relaxing, kind of melodic music. I find that interesting you say it's distinctly London. Is that like, is that a South London thing? Or is that kind of a broader sense? Because I don't know, I feel London, I think more like clubby, upbeat stuff. And his stuff feels so kind of subdued.
3: Maybe then I should have caveated that with the things that I associate with London always have that kind of melancholic tinge to them, which Mm. I think this definitely falls into that category. Of course, there's obviously a huge upbeat club scene, but I think London based producers that I gravitate towards have more of that melancholic
0: tinge. Probably fits the weather, right? Exactly. (laughs) Mm.
2: David, what about you?
0: I've been listening to a lot of stuff, but I have kind of an interesting story from today. I just came from the dentist, and they're nice enough there to allow you to listen to music while they fiercely drill into your molars. So I kind of had like a past the aux cord moment where he asked me if I wanted to put on a song and I had to kind of like think quickly. So I brought up my Spotify and I had this album there that I've been listening to a lot over the last couple of weeks. And that is Lifestyles of the Laptop Cafe by The Other People's Place. It's an older album from 2001 by this guy uh, James Stinson, who was one half of Drexia, kind of the famed Detroit electro duo. They just reissued this album after quite a long time, and it was a very rare and expensive release on the secondhand market. On Discogs, I think I just looked, and a original pressing would run you like over $300, so pretty rare there. And it's kind of interesting for me because You know, it's one of those albums where when it was released, it kind of went under the radar. They dropped it about a week before 9-11, and then I believe a month or so after, he unfortunately passed away. So the album never really got a lot of light during the time as a lot of kind of cult classics, you know, is the case. And then... Over the following decade, it became very obsessed over and people obviously started paying a lot of money for it. I actually never really had heard of the album before it got reissued a couple months ago by Warp, which for me is something that is kind of always interesting. You know, like, I write about music and I like to think I know a lot, I guess, but there's always albums that are even deemed kind of classics by other people that I will still discover and have never heard and kind of, like, fall in love with in a new light. It has really, like, everything I look for in a techno album. It's very deep and kind of psychedelic but also very melodic and has these really beautiful kind of segments yeah it was kind of gave me some calm while they were drilling into my teeth but also had this kind of like chaotic epic vibe to it so there was a lot going on to say the least and I think I might have been dancing a little bit while they were doing their thing
2: I'm interested in the title of it, mm-hmm. Lifestyles of the Laptop Cafe. Yeah. Were there even laptop cafes when this came out?
0: From what I've read, it came out right about during the time where they were becoming a thing. And I believe more specifically, Starbucks was like the first coffee shop, laptop cafe that gave Wi Fi. People, you know, kind of like holding themselves up in laptop cafes, staring into screens. He saw us to start of what would, from then until now, be our obsession with staring into iPhones and laptops and kind of being maybe a little antisocial at times. It's a cool example, too, of, you know, tech instrumental, techno and electro having these, you know, kind of hidden messages and themes, which I also think is something that people overlook a lot. You know, the people that kind of think music without words can't really be about anything.
1: One thing that's really cool about this record is like it's a, it's a almost a direct antecedent for the James Ferraro album Far Side Virtual that everyone mm. you know was so excited about when it came out in 2011, which is this record where all the song titles are like you know uh, referencing the corporate networked culture we live in like Starbucks, Google, etc. And if you listen to these records, they both have kind of have the same dependence on the tinny digital sounds that kind of make up a lot of our modern corporate consumer experiences. You
2: mean like the post-Muzak?
1: Yeah, totally. Except that one of them came out ten years earlier. Yeah. And they both are getting at this sensation of loneliness in the tinny-Muzak world.
0: And I think that fits to a lot of like the musical feelings on the album. It's kind of like very sparse but at the same time has this tranquil notion that, like, draws you in.
2: Ezra, what have you been listening to?
1: I wish that I could tell you guys I've been listening to some kind of obscure electronic music, like my esteemed colleagues, but (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately I've been listening almost exclusively to the new Lana Del Rey song, Love, Respect, came out last week, I believe. It's really just such a killer. I mean, I love Lana. I've been following her forever. And this is honestly a career highlight, in my opinion. Like, she hasn't put anything out since 2015. Her last album was really slept on. It was, like, a lot more low-key. I mean, there was High by the Beach was kind of a hit, but the rest of the record was very subdued. And it seems like on this one, she's really kind of going for it. She got Benny Blanco on production, and he really brings it. I mean, he's totally a wizard and knows how to bring out the best in the people he works with. And here he gives her this, like, really grand, sweeping production kind of in line with... Young and Beautiful, probably her biggest hit, but with kind of a real pulse. This song really does kind of go off in the way that she hasn't necessarily, you know, like like she hasn't really had a song that you could necessarily hear on the radio or like hear at a club, but this one really has the potential for that. And on top of that, she really has come into her own as this like singular figure for our generation where... She, as far as I'm concerned, the only person who is on the scale and with the amount of attention that she gets, directly addressing the weird, fascinating crisis and also opportunity that a generation has, where we're like living in this post-historical era, where you know, like, Alondra's music is entirely referential. She uses all these references to Elvis, to like the past, etc. It's all like steeped in this meta, vintage, explicitly referential and vintage thing not just because she is obsessed with the past it's because she's obsessed with how our generation can't escape the past with like retromania and we're so involved in retreading the glories of the past that it's almost like who are we i mean like the i'm going to read the the first verse of her song of the song it's like look at you kids with your vintage music coming through satellites while cruising you're part of the past but now you're the future signals crossing can get confusing this is her most direct statement yet, where she's saying, This is what it's like to be alive nowadays. You are in this constant, confusing environment of signs and symbols from all throughout history that you have immediate access to. But like who are you? You know, who like who are you supposed to be? Like, you have vintage music, but what does it mean to be alive today? And that's I think a huge anxiety for my generation, even if people aren't necessarily like aware of it. But you look around and it's like What does it mean to be alive today? Like, what are the codes of our generation? They're all referential. They're all like, oh, I'm doing like 80s, you know, mixed with 70s or whatever. Like, the 90s are back, et cetera. It's like you can kind of feel lost in the present moment because the past is so available. And I think that Lana is trying to find something timeless. I mean, her songs are all about these timeless emotions of love and youth, et cetera, like that songs have always been about. But she's trying to situate that in this current environment where. It can be really confusing to try to figure out who you are.
2: For me, as a woman specifically, her music speaks to that idea and specifically with a lens towards femininity and representations of femininity and where a woman can fit within it. And she expresses what it feels like to be trapped within a prison of femininity and she articulates it but in a way where it's always really ambiguous and like these past representations of women like her song the ultra violence song i think it's a quote from an old soul song which i'm blanking on now but like he hit me and it felt like a kiss do you remember do you know what song that is the original
1: song is the crystals from 1962 he hit me and it felt like a kiss
2: yeah That is not a progressive sentiment at all, but she chooses the approach of sort of articulating what the cultural discourse around women has been historically, and that sometimes maybe we feel still very much trapped within that. Other lyrics from that song are like, I'm your jazz singer and you're my cult leader. I'll love you forever. I'll love you forever. It's really, really intense. I don't know of many other artists who are doing anything like that.
1: The way that she intentionally uses points of reference scattered from across the entire spectrum of American identity, which she references Walt Whitman all the time, T.S. Eliot, up to like more modern things like Elvis, James Dean, etc., it's like she's flattening the past intentionally mm-hmm. and showing how people construct identity in a modern time is completely defined by these flattened past archetypes.
0: I never really got that much into her music. I haven't really heard a lot of it. And I didn't really know this was something as far as, you know, referencing the past was a big thing in her music. But it's interesting because Moody Man on his last album sampled Alana Del Rey song. So I'm thinking now because he is someone that has been a leader of sampling. That's like such a big part of his music, especially older black music and funk and soul and all these styles. So I'm wondering if that was kind of a nod to him maybe recognizing that that was something she had an affinity for.
1: I think that he recognizes that there is something timeless in what she's doing. Yeah. And it's not just, like, this, you know, gimmicky copying shtick that she's often been accused of. I mean, he, if there's anybody who's I mean, qualified... He accuses a
0: lot of people totally. of that,
1: yeah. which is
0: funny, especially
1: white people. Yeah, I mean, if there's anybody who's qualified to decide, like... What is or is not timeless I think it's Moody Man Mm -hmm. He's built a whole career out of it They're
2: both out of the box thinkers That supersede distinctions of high and low Mm -hmm. They think bigger than that What I've been really excited about this week Is Pharmacon's new album Contact Which is coming out March 31st on Sacred Bones. So far she's released a song called Transmission and obviously this is like completely different side of the musical spectrum from Lana, but there are kind of some parallels in a weird way. When I interviewed her a long time ago around her first wide release called Abandon, And the thing that was really remarkable about her was her live performances. The instrumentals are kind of power electronics, noise, and then she goes into the crowd and, I guess, screams a lot, like strains her voice, shows it from uncomfortable, strange, awkward angles. It's very, very visceral. And within her performances, I think kind of like a lot of very, very harsh industrial music. She enacts these sort of uh, paradoxes between both performing a kind of uh, aggression and a violence, like incarnating a certain violence in her performance, but then also incarnating the experience of oppression. There's an ambiguity between And a lot of, I think, noise music, like, mimicking the violent logic of society, but at the same time incarnating what it feels like to experience that. And it's not exactly like a one-to-one parallel with Lana, but it's sort of this productive ambiguity. The new song kind of reminds me a lot of her live performances. Her last album... Uh, bestial burden was recorded in the wake of her having a surgery that I think was uh, obviously traumatic and focusing a lot on the body. And it was very up close. A lot of her gasping and hyperventilating or breathing really loudly it was kind of uh, uncomfortable to listen to and felt very intimate and this one feels a lot more like the sort of electrifying experience you have listening to her live where she's Walking in the crowd And she describes it as her anxiety Building up throughout the day before the show And then just everything coming out Even though Power Electronics is sort of A niche kind of music I know she's said in the past that She really enjoys playing for people Who are not noise heads And who might just come across her music at random Because they have the most visceral response To it They're not evaluating it in terms of like Oh well it sounds like throbbing well, They're they're communing with her i don't
0: think my mom would like her show
2: probably not if you are going to play your parents music from within this vein pharmacon is accessible in a way because her stuff is very composed it often has like a very clear rhythm it sounds very deliberate it's not just like noodly and all over the place it's very precise David is working on a piece on Discogs, and I know he's also a frequent user of Discogs. Recently, Resident Advisor released a list of the most expensive electronic records that were ever sold on the database. David, what stuck out to you about this?
0: I'd say what stuck out to me, I mean, a lot of the stuff on the list was kind of stuff I expected to be there. I mean, there was, like, some Moody Man records, you know, and in those cases, it was just kind of something that was really good and rare and not really pressed a lot, kind of limited. Those are going to be expensive. There was the special edition of Cyro Apex Twins' last album, and this was the limited collector's edition again. You know, he had a screen print of the record's master So this is kind of more like collectibles type stuff. They had kind of a section for records, and they even said that there's kind of like a special place reserved in hell for people selling these records, and these are people that are just taking new releases and flipping them on the secondhand market for these crazy prices. They're pretty much just capitalizing on the immediate interest on these records and knowing that people know that, you know, they're going to be bought up and down the line they're going to be something that's rare and in limited supply sorry
1: what's the most you've ever spent on a record on discogs
0: it's funny you should ask that that actually happened to me two weekends ago I learned the perils of drunk discogs which is dangerous just like the driving which you should not do um (laughs) But yeah, I went home after a DJ gig and I was paid in a Amazon gift card unexpectedly. They kind of just like slipped it into my hand and said, this is okay, right? And I kind of just shrugged my shoulders. But I got home at about four in the morning and I pulled the trigger on uh, a Moody Man album on his debut release. And it was like $100, dollars i would say. That's probably, that's been my, uh, that's been my peak. Back to what I was saying, yeah, I mean, I got this 12 inch and I think it was $23 and then I looked, online recently, and there's copies going for over $100. And this just came out not even a year ago. And so this is kind of what I was saying before about some of the newer records on there. I mean, these records go up there in kind of limited supply and... People are kind of just kind of capitalizing on suckers that are impatient and don't want to wait for a repress that is definitely going to come. And you can even look in the comments sections of these records on Discogs where you have the label talking with the buyers, kind of alerting them on when it will get repressed. Sometimes it's as simple as we need 20 people to say that they would buy the repress and then they'll repress it there. So it's something that's very kind of organic and crowdsourced, but it's also kind of strange and jarring because... These records are originally, you know, priced at 20 bucks, and people are paying, you know, five times that. If you look historically, Deep House and Detroit House and Moody Man Records and stuff like that are usually some of the most ex- expensive ones on there, because a lot of the original community of people that kind of started using Discogs are people from those worlds, kind of like house heads. Um... I learned that uh, last year the highest selling record in all of discogs was a 12 inch from Andres, who's a Detroit producer, and it was another instance of a 12 inch that was, you know, originally like 20 bucks, and people kind of bought it all up, and it's it's really good, but you know, there are people dropping hundreds of dollars on it, and eventually it did get repressed uh, in this last year, so that's a good thing for those people. Another thing that I thought was really interesting about the list, they. Talked about this uh, record from uh, Pachanga Boys, or kind of like a tech house duo. And this was cool because they have this song called Time. It's like a really classic closer. Um, Anna's nodding. She likes that one. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of cool because, you know, I mean, it's a really good song. But the kind of catch with it is that the only way you could get this song on vinyl was was to buy this limited edition album that was the only record that had the song on it. So in this case, it's crazy because people are paying, you know, hundreds of dollars just for this one song. I mean, it's not even like three songs, it's one song. So they'll really do anything for it.
2: Question, would this song be available for streaming?
0: Yeah, Yeah, you can buy it digitally, you can stream it on Spotify,
1: you know, it's widely available. I think it's been in commercials. Say that you're somebody who dropped 500 bucks on this Andres record, yeah. and then it gets repressed. Are you just, you're pissed?
0: You're really pissed? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing with the Lifestyles of the Laptop Cafe, because, as I said, that was a very rare treasured record going for $300 to $400, and buying records on Discogs is, it, it's, it's an investment for a lot of people. You know, like me buying the Moody Man record, I dropped a lot of money on it, but if I'm in a jam down the line, I could sell it. And unless it gets repressed, which it probably will not, it's just going to go up in value. So, yeah, I mean, for those people, their nest egg is kind of Their record shambles. collection.
3: Yeah. Who are the people who are doing the flipping? Are they the same types of people who basically do this sort of thing, thing on eBay where they buy cheap jeans and then sell them at a markup? Or are they people who've come into these records themselves?
0: I'd say it's probably a mix. I mean, I'd say if you have older, more experienced buyers, they're probably, you know, doing it for better reasons where they've just kind of built this collection and they have a lot of valuable records. Maybe they bought some record in the 90s and they have it and it's been on their Discogs page versus someone who, you know, as the RA article, they talked about um, this Prince of Denmark box set on Giggling, which is a new record. The record originally was very expensive. I think it was like $100. Mm -hmm. But people just kind of went crazy over it, probably because it was so expensive. It was just kind of a hot record. They looked at one instance where somebody bought it and sold it for like $300. So a lot of the records they talk about, you know, they're not like they've been sold for $1,000. They're just looking at the rise in the price where they bought it from. So, yeah, I mean, people capitalize on impatience and on popularity. It's kind of like with eBay where you could buy now versus bid. Sometimes if you just want that record and you go on and you see it and you see that price, you're just going to buy it.
2: I grew up sort of working in record stores and I have this very vivid memory of one of the record stores where I worked The buyer would go through people's records and then he'd set aside a few that he knew were super valuable. He would kind of like price them really low and then buy them personally. And then, you know, with the (laughs) inevitability that he would flip them. And, you know, this kind of culture has been going on for a while. But how does Discogs change the game? And why is Discogs kind of necessary in an era where a lot of record stores are closing up?
0: It's just... Far more accessible Their grading system You know how they grade the quality of the records Is pretty easy to understand And it's something that people trust And really for them it comes back to Just a plethora of information I mean they have everything you need to know About every record Where if you go to some record stores I mean it's a free for all You can go to record stores where Nothing is really categorized And you walk in there Maybe you'll find something really great And that's like what I think is the beauty Of going to a record store Versus buying exclusively online. And you can also get really lucky at a record store. I mean, I found one disc of a Moody Man album for $8, and I bought that. And if you break down the price to what that album would cost, that was a pretty good deal. But yeah, I mean, it's very organized, and they're getting new releases regularly. So I think it's just a little more comprehensive experience than what you would get at a record store sometimes.
1: Are there people that are making an entire living off of this? Are people out here making like high five, low six figures, just like in bulk? flipping records, or is it only a hobby?
0: I'd say it's probably like a side hustle for a lot of those people. I would be interested to talk to someone who has made their entire career out of it. I mean, I guess it depends what kind of life you want to live. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can make a lot of money doing this. I mean, if you're persistent and you know which records to go for and they don't even have to necessarily always be really rare expensive records i mean people buy cheaper records on discogs and it's also important to note that most record stores now also sell on discogs and that's a huge part of their business i know for a lot of them they're making more selling on discogs than they do in their store because it's just so accessible and they can sell around the world djs especially i think for them it's a way to bring in some extra income, because, you know, they have big collections, they're buying records a lot, and maybe they decide they want to stop playing this record, or they don't really care about it as much, and they'll sell it.
1: I've heard a lot of really rare records on Discogs get, get actually bought up by prominent DJs a lot of the time. Like, I forget who he's telling me, but, like, you know, people will end up, like, a record they want, Ben UFO buys it, or, like, Jackmaster buys it. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I'm really curious about at what point, like, are these top-tier DJs just, like, swooping up all the good stuff? Yeah,
0: well, they have more money than the rest of us, so it's probably easier for them.
1: And it's a necessary investment, too. Yeah, their yeah.
0: I mean, that's their job. They have to have the best records in some cases. I mean, not to say that the best record's is always the rarest and the most expensive, because that's certainly not true. You could buy a record for five bucks, and it can be amazing. But yeah, I'd be interested to look more into that, for sure.
2: I tried to find a song recently that had, like, inspired an old band that I had, and it was a Japanese song, I think from the late 90s. And I looked everywhere on YouTube that had been taken down due to probably legal issues between Japan and other countries. I looked on all of the streaming sites, and obviously it was not something that had made it onto an American radar. And so I ended up having to contact my old bandmate, you know, to ask him to send me the MP3. Basically, the only place where I could get that song legally would probably be Discogs. Did you try it? Did you
0: see if it was there? It
2: was like cataloged on Discogs. I didn't see if there were any copies. It's also, I think, out of print. Yeah. I mean, I'd
0: say it's very helpful in those instances, especially if you're looking at, like, Rare electronic music in 12 inches and these limited releases. A lot of those are not on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Music. Um, and they're really hard to listen to, let alone kind of hold in your hands. So yeah, I mean, I would say it's really important as kind of the physicality of music is ever changing, that it's something that kind of remains. I mean, they do have digital music on there now, you can actually even download and buy mp3s on Discogs, which is interesting. So obviously, they see that it's important to be on uh, multiple formats. But for me, if I want to try to find something, and you know, it's not on Spotify or something like that, I usually will put it in Discogs. And they're really good at also including YouTube links. And sometimes too on YouTube, I found that if you just type in the name, where do you think the name is, it won't show up because a lot of these have been recorded under like strange titles. So Discogs does a good job at connecting those obscure physical releases to their streaming counterpart,
1: which is usually on YouTube. Let's just recap a little bit. Last week on this podcast, we actually talked about how Moby made these unsourced, wild claims about the Trump presidency, um, basically claiming that the Russian piss dossier was real.
3: That's its official title. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's the FBI designation. And that (laughs) got me thinking about one of my favorite movies, which is called Southland Tales, which Moby did the score for. The score is a combination of original works he composed for and also some of his other works that had already been released as B-sides or on his various ambient records. But this movie called Southland Tales was the sophomore outing from Richard Kelly, who you may know from directing and writing Donnie Darko. He made Donnie Darko. It was this huge sensation. He was kind of tipped as the next big thing for indie film. Everybody was going crazy because he writes, he directs, and he had this crazy vision, this like futuristic, dystopic sci-fi fantasy sensibility, and after Donnie Darko, which was kind of made on a shoestring budget, he got a pretty big budget for his next film. It was over $15 million, and he got this crazy cast. Let me just say that this is one of the most unbelievable casts that has ever been put together for a Hollywood film. (laughs) You've got The Rock, you've got Sarah Michelle Gellar, you've got Mandy Moore, you've got um, Wallace Shawn the guy from My Dinner with Andre and Prince Vizini from Princess Bride and you got Bai Ling just like all these like really out of control mid 2000s pop culture ephemera type people and then you got Moby doing the score and this film debuted at Cannes and it was booed it was just viciously torn apart by critics audiences and it's kind of been largely forgotten but when you look back at it, it turns out to have been one of the most prescient films, I think, of its era. He made this like sprawling, almost three-hour movie set about two years after it came out. It was came out in 2006 and it was set in 2008 about this world that basically takes the trends that were already existent at the height of the Bush era where you had reality TV stars, you had the administration, bald faced lies on TV, mission accomplished, all that stuff, all the like you know, the way that the administration was kind of using politics as reality TV to advance an agenda. And then you it also has this whole like Fox News, like squawking partisan, politics is blood sport, cable TV pundit environment. And it kind of throws that all in the blender and comes out with this like sublime concoction of a movie where the plot makes absolutely no sense. You've got The Rock wandering around LA with amnesia. He's married to Mandy Moore, who's the president's daughter, but he's sleeping with Sarah Michelle Gellar, who's a porn star named Kristen Now, who just released a pop song called Teen Horniness Is Not a Crime, and he doesn't know who he is, and he's just like, there's all these conspiracies and double crossings and red herrings and Justin Timberlake does like a musical number to the killers where he pours a beer on his head with like a bloody cross on his chest. It's just like so over the top. It's really like this cornucopia of trash culture that becomes sublime. And what happens with this movie is that like it wasn't just like a movie with bad actors, it was like a movie with actors whose crazy celebrity mannerisms were. A prophecy about what would happen to our culture. And if you look at the news, he was exactly right. I mean, just look at the way that our president talks. Look at the way that people on TV talk. Look at the way that YouTube stars talk. There's this like heightened, almost like post language language. People like say these sentences, they don't follow any syntax, they're just full of crazy verbs and nouns. And the president just says sad, and that's a sentence. And that's like, that's the tonality of this movie. It just, to me, is so evocative of how the trends of the Bush era have created the reality of today. Moby, for a long time, had been a liberal lightning rod. I mean, you, m- you may remember Eminem parodying Moby after Moby made some snarky comment about him being homophobic, making a music video where he like beats up m- this parody of Moby as the... Idea of the like snooty vegan bald liberal. So Moby's always kind of played this role as this like outsides, outsized spokesman for staunch vegan liberalism. And I think that plays into why Richard Kelly chose him to do the score. He himself is this totem for a kind of outsize parody liberalism, just in the same way that the film uses. Parodies of conservative viewpoints as well. I mean, it, it uses both. There's like Marxist vibrator wielding feminists, and then there's the conservatives with trucks and jeeps that fuck each other on screen. It's you know, it's you've got both of these like heightened absurdist images of these two political viewpoints, which is I think is what's completely happened nowadays. It's like when when, when you have this like media environment that rewards the loudest most cartoonish view you end up with loud cartoonish politicians and viewpoints and Moby represents a certain kind of archetype of that you know he's does a score for this movie and now about a decade later we see yeah we see this movie almost like coming to fruition and the predictions that it made and Moby himself now coming out and saying these cartoonish things. I mean, if, if somebody were to write the plotline of, like, vegan DJ accuses reality TV president of being p- blackmailed with a piss video from a Russian hotel room, that's a Southland Hills plot plotline right there.
2: So the last thing I wanted to talk about today was a kind of recent development in the fallout of last year's tragic ghost ship fire in Oakland. Anna, is it true that the authorities are now trying to make it obligatory for the police to report sublegal venues? Kind of. The directive that came down on Friday was
3: from within the Oakland Police Department that any officers, if they come across an illegal party, They have to report it to their supervisors and a special unit within the department. This directive is actually a slightly revised or updated order from one that came out a couple of weeks ago, which pertained to warehouses. So if officers came across illegal warehouses, they had to report them. But this has since been revised um, to focus specifically on illegal parties or events.
2: How would you characterize the response of the city of Oakland to the tragedy in general, as far as making sure that this doesn't happen again?
3: The situation has been incredibly messy, because it's transpired in the months since the fire. First of all, that officials knew about the venue and that police officers had been to the venue numerous times um, in the two years leading up to the fire. They were called out for at least 10 code violations, some pertaining to electrical wiring and trash. And while the cause of the fire has yet still to be determined, it is believed that it's most likely to have been electrical. They were also called out on one occasion about a party and while they did shut it down no arrests were made and there was no follow-up action taken. So officials have been under intense scrutiny that they didn't do anything about this building. However it's further complicated by the fact that the live-work spaces fall into this grey area where the fire department actually doesn't routinely inspect them because they're designated commercial spaces. So there wasn't that the fire department were shirking their duties, it's just that they weren't really ever supposed to be inspecting these places. And Oakland's mayor, Libby Shave, she's trying really hard to prevent a perceived crackdown on spaces and she's trying really hard to prevent unnecessary evictions from these places. So at the moment... There has been an order that the mayor has put out saying that while safety inspections will go on in these venues, I think there have been about 18 that have been identified by the city, no evictions will take place, and the city is trying hard to work with residents to stop them from being evicted. Because one of the big issues here is that the reason these spaces exist is because Oakland is one of the most expensive cities in the US for housing, So a lot of the residents in these spaces don't have anywhere else to go because they can't afford to live anywhere else. So it's a very, it's an incredibly complicated situation. And actually, the police chief of Oakland, Teresa Deloach-Reed, she's currently on leave. She's come under a lot of fire about this whole situation. And it's not clear exactly why she's on leave but it's suspected that there is a that it's a signal that the that the fire department haven't done a good job of investigating what happened with the fire
2: i don't live in oakland or understand uh, all of the nuances of being on the scene there but You know, there is something unusual and kind of progressive about this idea of giving the live workspaces a sort of amnesty period Mm. to get spaces up to code and opening up safe dialogue between the artists and the city, which is not something that always in my experience, has been the case. Almost like a harm reduction type approach.
3: In many regards, Oakland has taken a very progressive approach. What's been really interesting is we've been seeing other parts of the country. There's been, in Baltimore and in Denver, two big live-work spaces, um, which also operated as music venues. They got shut down. And while no clear link was made necessarily to the Oakland Fire, it's been largely suspected within those communities that it's, it's just a crackdown by the authorities that don't have as a progressive view as Oakland. So yes, in many ways, Oakland city officials are trying really hard to protect these tenants. They're just still coming up against a lot of politics and I guess, in some respects, an embarrassment on the part of the authorities for letting these venues slip through the cracks.
2: Wasn't there also a forum recently set up in New York kind of encouraging dialogue between nightlife here and the city?
3: New York's cultural affairs department has set up an initiative to open communication between the various diy communities within the city and the officials to figure out ways to protect these spaces and to protect members of these communities particularly the ones living in live work spaces. it's to be seen what's going to come of that but it's encouraging to see it's encouraging to see city officials taking proactive steps to protect their venues and their nightlife
2: Next week, we are going to be doing a series of themed articles on the topic of what's called dancing versus the state, kind of the history of dancing and nightlife being policed or running in with the law from around the time of prohibition to the present. So these kinds of topics about safety, who is being policed when we police nightlife and what and why will be touched upon. That's it for today. You've been listening to the Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website at thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. And if you want to follow the editors we've had on the podcast today, here are their uh, social media handles. I'm at Anacod on Twitter.
0: I am at... DL Garber
1: on Twitter. If you're going to drink in Discogs, please be careful. And I'm Ezra underscore Mark on Twitter. Um, m- my fans aren't known as Markheads. <laughs> so.
2: And I'm at Ad Hoc Emily on Twitter. You can listen to us every week on SoundCloud and also subscribe to the Thump podcast on iTunes. Rate and review us if you enjoy it. And I'd also like to point out that Thump has two other regular podcasts. One is called Rave Curious. It's with veteran rave critic and rave fan Josh Glazer. He talks with a different artist every week. And we also have another one called The Game with New York City-based producer and DJ Jubilee she brings on uh, a guest pretty much every week for conversation and music